Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. At the end of the last lesson, we found David in really the highest point that any human being in history could ever really hope to be on earth, at least at the time. Here was someone who was king of God's people, king of God's nation, and certainly uh, had a lot of favor with the Lord and had been blessed very greatly by the Lord. He had um, had a long period of strife fighting with Saul, who retained his position as king, even though he was no longer anointed by the Lord as King David had been anointed. But David went for years, having been anointed as a young man, uh, but waiting for, for Saul to be removed from the position one way or another. Well, Saul and almost all of his family dies. David takes over, becomes king of Judah. There's some more political strife. And then uh, David becomes king of all of Israel. And once that happens, David brings the ark to Jerusalem, which is now going to be the capital of the nation of Israel for the first time. They drive out uh, the Jebusites and take that town over, and David makes it uh, the, the, the headquarters and also his home. And he builds himself a nice home, a cedar palace, um, something made of heavy, hard wood and we see in chapter seven, the last lesson, that he he laments that he lives in a beautiful home, in a beautiful palace, but the Lord lives in a tent. Now, the Lord has never asked to live in anything other than a tent. The Lord commanded the building of the tabernacle, which is a tent, and lived in it uh, all these years, all these centuries since its creation. But David laments it, and the Lord says, you want to build me a house? I'll tell you what, David, I'll build you a house. And the Lord speaking, metaphorically talking about the, the family and the dynasty and the kingdom and, and the life, the, the, the legacy that he's going to build for David. So that's important backdrop for the things that we're about to look at. So we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 8. We're just going to kind of breeze through it very quickly, and I'll have it here on the screen. But what we see is David getting into war. He's going out uh, as the warrior king. He's uh, fighting and defeating the Philistines. We see him also involved with the Edomites and the Moabites, people who are around the area. And he is subduing all of them. He's getting rid of the Philistines, conquering the Philistines in some kind of way. But he's sort of subduing uh, all the nations around him, including the Ammonites, some people that will come up a little later in our story this evening. 
And David makes a big reputation for himself. And here we see that uh, there are some different people in charge of the um, of the priesthood and the royal court and those sorts of things that we see here at the end. And of course, you see that uh, the mention of uh, Abiathar, the son of uh, Ahimelech, who was the um, the one son that escaped when uh, Doeg the Edomite killed all of the priests and all of their families. He was the one that escaped with the ephod. And so now we see him along with uh, Zadok that uh, they are serving as priests. So everything really has come together for David. He's uh, successful in every way possible. Now we've got um, uh, God back in the tabernacle and we have priests serving once again. And they appear to be, uh, from what we've seen so far, holy men. And so chapter eight uh, gives us that picture of the, the David coming out of chapter six and seven, bringing the Ark of the Covenant back in a reverent fashion. Uh, chapter seven in this humility that and gratitude that he has. Who, you know, who, who am I, O oh Lord, that you would do these things for me? And uh, you see him here going out and being successful in his role as king. Now, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, David asks, and this appears to be a genuine ask, if there's anyone remaining from the family of Saul that he can show kindness to. And he learns that Mephibosheth is still alive. Now, Mephibosheth is first introduced back in chapter 4, and we kind of skipped over chapter 4, so we didn't really look at this. But what we find is that in the middle of all the political turmoil, um, the the nanny is holding a young Mephibosheth and she she gets up to run away and she drops Mephibosheth and hurts his legs and cripples him for life. So he was not born crippled, but now he is crippled for life, we find. And so we see here in um, verses uh, six, seven and eight, the story of, of, of David uh, welcoming Mephibosheth. Uh, Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, so this is Jonathan's son. Another important point to um, uh, point out is that, you know, Jonathan, who was David's best friend, this is not just the grandson of Saul, but this is the son of Jonathan. So someone who would be very important to David. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David, fell face down and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? So you can almost imagine what Mephibosheth's um, ideas about himself would have been at this time in history. Not just because he is the, the grandson of the defeated King Saul, but he is a lame person. He's a crippled person. He's someone who cannot walk. This would not be someone that would have any sort of position of honor of any kind in this society. They would have been, would have been looked down upon. Um, in many societies, for instance, in first century Roman society, if a child was born lame or with some sort of defect uh, for a while, they were commanded to be stoned to death. At other times, they were um, suggested that you take them and put them out on a hillside and leave them exposed. The idea is that they would be quickly eaten by wild animals. It was the first century version of abortion. And that changed largely in the third century, uh, I assume largely due to the influence of the church, 
that said, uh, no, we, we mustn't do this. The church went out and actually would spend their evenings going out looking for babies that had been left out in the woods and on hillsides and things of that nature, uh, always protecting those who cannot speak up for themselves. And so David, looking to show some kindness, finds Mephibosheth, who, who has a, a terrible self-disposition. And David instead treats him like a member of the royal family and says, you're going to eat with me from now on. And Mephibosheth moves to Jerusalem and lives in Jerusalem at uh, the palace with David and is treated like one of the king's sons. David treats him as his own son. And we see the humility that David has in chapter seven in praying before the Lord echoed here in Mephibosheth who says, who am I that you would do these things? For me, So note the parallels there. Remember, we're looking at the storytelling of the book of Samuel, what that might in, uh, inform us as far as how we're to interpret the content that we're reading. And so let's uh, move on here. So that's most of chapter nine then is Mephibosheth in um, Jerusalem. And it ends curiously with the sentence, his feet had been injured. Just a reminder that um, the family of Saul cannot walk. David danced his way into the palace, but the lone remnant of Saul's family is crippled and cannot walk. So that gets us to 2 Samuel chapter 10. And what we see here is that uh, the king of the Ammonites dies and the son becomes king in his place. And David says, I'll show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. And so he sends emissaries to console. And this seems to be a genuine move on David's part. And yet when they arrive, everyone is very suspicious and everyone is very paranoid. And so they cut off half their beards and uh, cut their clothing off down to, and this particular version says their hips, the more accurate translation would be to their buttocks and sends them away. What's the purpose of that? The purpose of course is to shame them. Now here are men now who cannot go out in public. In fact, uh, with their clothes torn, they don't even really want to go home. And so they uh, get to Jericho, which is uh, most likely the nearest city that they come to, the most nearest habited place that they come to. And David says, you know what? You can stay there until your beards grow back. He saves them the, the misery of having to, to walk and travel with half a beard, something that would have been very shameful to these men. And even though the scripture doesn't tell us David immediately plans any sort of retaliation, the Ammonites, now having done this evil thing, fear that David is now going to come and, and attack them. And so they decide to preemptive strike and, and they, they sally up for war. And so when David hears about this, well, then he does go to uh, defend himself. And so he gets Joab and uh, Joab gets uh, his brother Abishai and they split up the, uh, the Hebrew forces and the Ammonites join together with the Arameans and they come to attack and uh, the uh, Hebrew forces are just too much. And they send these armies off running. And all this is reported to David. So one interesting thing here is this is the first story that we have where, you know, David's now king, but now this time he's not going into war. He's sending Joab and Joab's taking his brother and they're going off and they're doing war. David is not doing war. David's back at the palace. He's sort of slowly taking on this role of, of king. He's beginning to delegate things to other people. Something that is reasonable, something uh, seems reasonable to us, certainly, but we'll see how that plays in in the very next uh, story. So um, let's check my notes here. 
make sure I got everything that we wanted to say about these. Yeah, so uh, that sets up the background then for us for chapters 11 and 12. And so now we're going to read chapter 11. So follow along with me as I read from chapter 11, and this is in the Christian Standard Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, when kings march out to war, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and strolled around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, a very beautiful woman. So David sent someone to inquire about her, and he said, Isn't this Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam and wife of Uriah the Hittite? David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to him, he slept with her. Now, she had just been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Afterwards, she returned home. The woman conceived and sent word to inform David, I am pregnant. David sent orders to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the troops were going and how the war was going. And he said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the palace with all his master's servants. He did not go down to his house. When it was reported to David, Uriah didn't go home. David questioned Uriah. Haven't you come from a journey? Why didn't you go home? Uriah answered David, the ark, Israel, and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my master Joab and his soldiers are camping in the open field. How can I enter my house to eat and to drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live and by your life, I will not do this. Stay here today also, David said to Uriah, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited Uriah to eat and drink with him, and David got him drunk. He went out in the evening to lie down on his cot with his master's servants, but he did not go home. The next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, put Uriah at the front of the fiercest fighting, then withdraw from him so that he is struck down and dies. When Joab was besieging the city, he put Uriah in the place where he knew the best enemy soldiers were. Then the men of the city came out and attacked Joab, and some of the men from David's soldiers fell in battle. Uriah the Hittite also died. Joab sent someone to report to David all the details of the battle. He commanded the messenger, when you finished telling the king all the details of the battle, if the king's anger gets stirred up and he asks you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you realize they would shoot from the top of the wall? At Thibez, who struck Abimelech, son of Jerubasheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the top of the wall so that he died? Why did you get so close to the wall? Well, if he says that, then say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Then the messenger left. When he arrived, he reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger reported to David. The men gained the advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we counterattacked right up to the entrance of the city gate. However, the archers shot down on your servants from the top of the wall, and some of the king's servants died. Your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this matter upset you because the sword devours all alike. 
Intensify your fight against the city and demolish it. Encourage him. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband Uriah had died, she mourned for him. When the time of mourning ended, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. However, the Lord considered what David had done to be evil. Okay, so this is from the Christian Standard Bible. And um, my notes are from Robert Alter's version. So I've mentioned Robert Alter's version many times in these series. He is a professor of Hebrew uh, language and literature at UC Berkeley. He is uh, Jewish by heritage. I don't know that he's a believer. He definitely doesn't seem to be Christian, uh, but he is very familiar with the text and he's really made a case over the last several decades that the narrative style of the text is very important to fully understanding it. And he has such a high view of the text, at least uh, as a piece of literature. Theologically, he's going to date things later and he's going to take sort of a liberal view of scripture rather than a biblically conservative view of scripture. So if you're ever reading his uh, commentaries or any of his notes or anything, just keep that in mind. But his understanding of the language and of the storytelling and of ancient texts is really illuminating. And so a lot of my notes here in chapters 11 and 12 are from his version, which is a beautiful thing to read. And in the beginning of his commentary on these two chapters, he says this, chapters 11 and 12, the story of David and Bathsheba and its immediate aftermath are the great turning point of the whole David story. And it seems as though the writer has pulled out all the stops of his remarkable narrative art in order to achieve a brilliant realization of this crucially pivotal episode. The deployment of thematic keywords, which we'll look at here in a minute, the shifting play of dialogue, the intricate relation between instructions and their execution, the cultivated ambiguities of motive are orchestrated with a richness that scarcely has an equal in ancient narrative. Though the analytic scholars have variously sought to break up these chapters into editorial frame and succession narrative or prophetic composition and old source, amending patches of the text as they proceed, such efforts are best passed over in silence for the powerful literary integrity of the text speaks for itself. That's how he begins his notes just for these two chapters. He's got notes on almost every verse of the entire book of Samuel. But that's his uh, beginning of just these two chapters here. So uh, Alter points out that in 11 verse 1 in the Hebrew, uh, in the in the spring when the kings go off to war, when the kings um, go forth, the word kings there is melakim. And uh, we've talked about this word a little bit when we talk about Melchizedek, that um, the, the word there, uh, the, the mel refers to king and the zedek is about righteousness. So he's king of righteousness. So this uh, melakim, this is uh, anytime you have an im ending, that's a plural in Hebrew most of the time. And so that melakim, you have melak, which are kings and melakim, which is kings, plural. So in Hebrew, it says melakim. Well, there's a very similar sounding term, malakim, not melakim, but malakim. Here's one letter difference. Malakim means messengers. And what do we have throughout this entire chapter? Messenger after messenger after messenger. Messages being sent back and forth. And so uh, the text is a little ambiguous, but the verb clearly indicates kings as the word go forth 
would be something that a king would do would not be something that a messenger would do. A messenger would be sent. A messenger would not go forth. A king would go forth as into battle. So clearly it means kings, but there's enough of a wordplay there that the idea of messengers is brought to us right in the opening words of this chapter. And so the wordplay, the pun remains and is foreshadowing for what's about to happen. So you'll notice David isn't going into battle. Instead, he's at home. He's sitting. He's laying. He's staying. In fact, we see that he's um, getting out of bed in the evening. The typical uh, Middle Eastern siesta would have ended sometime in the early afternoon so that David is getting up at essentially close to dusk shows that he's been lazy and been laying around in bed, taking extended naps. And when he sees Bathsheba, he sends that verb, that verb send is used 11 times in this chapter and it frames the beginning and the end. David is always sending messengers and all, everything that happens in this chapter is being done through messengers. And so uh, that means that this could scarcely be a secret in the royal court with so many people aware of what's going on. Bathsheba is recognized by her husband and her father, which is unusual. Why? Well, both men are part of David's elite army. So the narrator is letting you know that this isn't just some woman, but this is the wife and the daughter of two people that are important to David's kingdom. Uriah is referred to as Uriah the, the Hittite, or as this um, translation says, uh, the Hethite. Um, but this idea of, of Hittite might lead you to believe that he's not an Israelite. However, his name, Uriah, means the Lord is my light. The Lord is in the, the uh, uh, tetragrammaton, the, the, the four letters referring to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Uriah's name is explicitly Israeli. So he's either a naturalized citizen or perhaps a descendant. But the picture that the narrator is trying to paint for you, once again, the foreigner is acting rightly. And the person who is the representative of God, who should know better, is doing evil. We saw this at the beginning of the book of Samuel. So that story about Eli and Hophni and Phinehas and the things that they're doing, and then the way that the Philistines treat the ark, those are all fantastic stories and they're historically accurate, but they are big foreshadowing for a moment like this. It's underscoring once again in the book of Samuel, a foreigner is God-fearing and it's the man of God who's doing evil. Uh, in verse four, it says, she came to him. So when you have this, and again, in Hebrew, when you have this construction, when it's a masculine subject, as in he came into her, it explicitly means that he entered into her bed for the purpose of sexual relations, usually an initial sexual encounter. So you'll see it when people are, are, are married or given in marriage uh, that he says that, you know, he, he, he came into her. And so that's a euphemism for sexual relations, particularly a first act of intercourse. But in this less common reversal, Bathsheba is the subject. She comes into him, just referring sort of geographically to where she is going, uh, coming into the room where he is. And it seems to mean simply that she came into the place where he stayed, but certainly it would be hard to separate the two ideas given what happens. And this wordplay by making Bathsheba the subject could be a hint that she was in some way willing Although in the rest of the text, she seems to be sort of at the mercy of other people. She seems to be very, very passive. Other people making decisions on her behalf, something that would not have been uncommon for the time, certainly when a king is involved. Now, this is a bit of a weak suggestion that uh, she may have had some sort of uh, consent. And so if she was not a willing participant in the events, then you can add rape to David's list of sins in this chapter alone. 
Scripture also tells us that she was washing after the, the period of her uncleanliness. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means in frank terms, she just completed the time of her period. This is something that we see in the Torah that after the well, woman's monthly period is over, there's a time of cleansing that needs to be happened. Why does the scripture need to tell us that? It seems like an odd detail. Well, number one, it's telling us why she was bathing. Bathing was not a daily activity like it is for us or uh, a semi-daily, uh, every other day uh, activity here in uh, safer at home times. Uh, but it's also letting us know she's not pregnant. It's letting us know that when she becomes pregnant, there is in no way a chance that it is Uriah's baby. We know for sure it is David's. That's why it's giving us this crucial detail. So she becomes pregnant and she lets David know this through a messenger. And David, through a messenger, sends for Uriah. So uh, David never suggests to Uriah that he should go lie with his wife, although clearly that's what he's trying to get him to do, but he never says it. And the text says that Uriah goes out and lies and you're expecting, the reader's expecting to hear it with his wife, but it says at the, at the gate, <laughs> at the gate with the other, uh, with the other men, with the other soldiers, the king's servants, with his comrades in arms. And so it's a, a little plot twist for um, the readers, but also of course for David. And so Uriah lies, but at the king's gate, not with his wife. And in fact, it's Uriah who's the first to bring up the idea of lying with his wife by saying he's not going to do it. So why does he bring this up? Because David hasn't brought it up. David hasn't suggested it. And yet Uriah explicitly states it. You know, it was very common at this time for soldiers uh, not to engage in sexual intercourse during times of war. So why was it something that Uriah felt the need to say out loud? Does Uriah know? You know, all these things have been happening through messengers. It's quite possible everybody knows what's going on between David and Bathsheba. Has it gotten back to Uriah? Does he know? Well, if not, the irony is just there for you and I, the, the readers, the hearers. We can see what he can't. If he does know, he's playing a dangerous game with the king. He's uh, dangerously hinting, intending to prick the king's conscience. Uh, perhaps Uriah is unwitting and it's the narrator who's the one doing the hinting for us by emphasizing different parts of the dialogue. Or maybe Uriah doesn't know at first when he arrives, but after spending a night at the king's gates, he hears all sorts of things and finds out the truth. And so during the second conversation with David, you'll notice the repetition when David says to go home, he says, oh, go home and eat and drink and sleep with my wife. Well, I'd never do that. Not on your life, not on your very life, he repeats. Um, and he never refers to him as my Lord, the King. So it's quite possible that he might know about it. The thing is though, it's impossible to tell. It's impossible to know if he knows about it. It reads perfectly always in any of those scenarios I just laid out. It just reads perfectly right down, right down the way. And the Bible loves this kind of ambiguity. Scripture loves this ambiguity because it forces us to think about it. It forces us to think it through, to examine the implications, to examine the text closely. If there were an answer, we'd take the answer and we'd move on. But with no answer, we roll the story around over and over again. We read and reread. We share it with others and we talk about it. Well, what do you think? You know, masterful, masterful storytelling. 
So with uh, David, with all of his plans, including this uh, crude last ditch effort to get him drunk, with all of his plans failed, David sends Uriah off to die. And he sends Uriah off with a note for Joab. That's a note that would have been sealed with wax, most likely. And Uriah, knowing or not what's going on, we assume that he would continue to be the the loyal soldier that he has been thus far and would not open the note. Now, you notice David provides very, very specific instructions to Joab, but Joab does something different. David tells him to, to have the army go into battle and to people pull back and Joab and, and for Uriah to be killed. Joab adds to David's instructions. If everyone were to pull away, it would be clear that there was a plot and it would be clear that Joab was complicit in this plot. And so um, he decides to... Um, do more than what David has asked. In an effort to obscure it, he realizes more people are going to have to die in order for this to be credible. So this is why when he sends a messenger back to David, he says, hey, look, if he gets angry because people died, because we made this seemingly foolish move, just tell him Uriah the Hittite also died. He knows David will see the foolishness of the attack, which was not ordered by David, but will understand the reason for it with the information about Uriah. And Joab's reference to Abimelech is really more for the reader than for the story itself, as it's never related to David. It's never relayed. But the point of the story is that David is like Abimelech, and because of his sexual appetites, is in danger of being done in by a woman. And uh, I should point out that blaming Bathsheba seems to be Joab's thoughts and not the narrator's. Well, by speaking so explicitly about Uriah to the servant, He's kind of giving away the secret, right? So Joab may be purposefully exposing the plot in order to blame it on David and free himself of the implications of a blunderous mission where a number of men died at Joab's command. Joab may be uh, stupidly speaking in the open about something that is secret, which everybody already knows anyway, so that everyone knows, well, Joab didn't really do this. It was David that frees Joab up from the anger of his own men. So the messenger delivers yet a different story to David when he arrives, taking some of what Joab said and adding some of his own things. The messenger provides some justification for why the battle took place the way it did. And he doesn't even wait for the chance for David to get mad. Uh, Remember how mad David got when the messenger who killed Saul came and said, oh, hey, guess what? I killed Saul. And uh, David was not happy about that and had had him killed. And so... um, The messenger does not even wait, doesn't even give David the chance to get angry. He goes ahead and delivers the punchline right away about Uriah. He understands what Joab was hinting at, it seems. Uh, In other words, there's nothing secret happening here. And David's response is an empty cliche. Well, you know, the sword swings one way and sometimes it swings another is sort of the literal of what he says in, in Hebrew. And it's just an empty cliche and it's Acknowledging Joab made a good decision in terms of trying to cover it up, and it shows that he's not at all contrite, not not only for what he's done, but for also now what Joab has done and uh, that's gotten out of control. And now even more people have been essentially murdered. In fact, he seems satisfied with the whole situation. Text says, when the morning was over, the M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, the morning when Bathsheba was done mourning her husband. Mourning period at this time was seven days. So she wastes no time leaving her home for the palace. And of course, she'd want to be the king's wife and living with him before she begins to show. 
David gathers her into his house. Note that David isn't anywhere but his house in this entire story. And now, only now at the end here, does the Lord enter the story. And the first judgments are cast about everything that we've heard so far. The sloth, the lust, the adultery, the murder, the mass murder of his own men, the treason, the lying, the conspiring, the injustice, the selfishness, the pride. It says um, that the Lord saw that it was evil. In chapter 7, David was in the, the highest, most blessed place that any human in history had ever been. And now, all of this. Uh, I would love to reread chapter 11 for you, having gone over all those notes. But for the sake of time, I'll leave that for you to do once we're done here this evening. Uh, since there's no lesson tomorrow, maybe you can take some time and reread 11 and 12 tomorrow. So let's go back to the text and move on to chapter 12. Second Samuel chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. When he arrived, he said to him, Two men there were in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very large flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one small lamb that he had bought. He raised her and she grew up with him and with his children. From his meager food, she would eat. From his cup, she would drink. And in his lap, she would sleep. She was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man could not bring himself to take one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for his guest. Now, David was infuriated with this man and said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay four lambs for that lamb. Nathan replied to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I rescued you from Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your lap. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that was not enough, I would have given you even more. Why then have you despised the Lord's command by doing what I consider evil? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife as your own wife. You murdered him with the Ammonite sword. Now, therefore, the sword will never leave your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and under the sun. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, and the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck that baby that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became deathly ill. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, 
and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died, but David's servants were afraid to tell him that the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. So how can we tell him the baby is dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. Then David got up from the ground. He washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house and worshiped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept. But when he died, you got up and ate food. He answered, while the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I am going to him, but he will not return to me. Then David consoled his wife, Bathsheba. He went to her and slept with her. She gave birth to a son and she named him Solomon. And the Lord loved him. And he sent a message through the prophet Nathan. And Nathan named him Jedidiah because of the grace of the Lord. Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal fortress. Then Joab sent messengers to David to say, I have fought against Rabbah and have also captured its water supply. Now, therefore, assemble the rest of the troops, lay siege to the city and capture it. Otherwise, I will be the one to capture the city and it will be named after me. So David assembled all the troops and went to Rabbah. He fought against it and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king and it was placed on David's head. The crown weighed 75 pounds of gold and it had a precious stone in it. In addition, David took away a large quantity of plunder from the city. He removed the people who were in the city and put them to work with saws, iron picks and iron axes and to labor at brick making. He did the same to all the Ammonite cities. Then he and all his troops returned to Jerusalem. So that's the text for this evening. Some notes on chapter 12. Just like in chapter 11, chapter 12 begins with some wordplay. So in chapter 11, it was the pun that Melachim kings and the Malachim messengers. In chapter 12, it begins with the Lord sends. The same verb that was used 11 times in the previous chapter for all of the evil acts. Now the Lord is going to do some of his own sending. And he sends Nathan. Nathan's uh, name means he gave. Nathan may be counting on the possibility that um, this is a, a, a quote from Robert Alter's commentary uh, about why Nathan ventures into this story. And the story is so dripping with fairy tale in the way that it's written and its rhythm and, and it's um, just the way that it uh, paces out. And Alter says, Nathan may be counting on the possibility that the obverse side of a guilty conscience in a man like David is the anxious desire to do the right thing. And so even though Nathan is sort of dripping with fairy tale as he tells the parable, David's anger flares up immediately and he falls 
for the righteous trap. Nathan uses these verbs, eat, uh, drink, and, and the lamb is, is in the lap. And he's sort of recounting all of the things that David did to Uriah's, feeding him and getting him drunk and trying to get him to go lie with his wife. And um, you notice that the Lord uses that same language of uh, all the things that he put in David's lap and all of the things that he's given to David. So you see the parallels happening there. Note that David is implicated as the murderer, although it was David himself never killed anyone, but he's implicated as the murderer because he's the one behind it all, even though he worked through agents. Doomed is the man, said David, uh, declaring a death sentence. And actually the penalty for stealing someone's property was to repay it fourfold, which he mentions in the verse that follows. So how can David repay what he's done? Well, Obviously, he cannot. So instead, God repays David fourfold for what he's done. And David will experience the death of four children, this unnamed son of Bathsheba. And in future stories, his daughter Tamar, his son Amnon, and his son Absalom. The Lord's proclamation in twelve, chapter 12 echoes David's prayer in 7. The Lord seems to be saying to David, okay, I gave you a house and this is what you did with it. The Lord says to him, the sword shall not swerve from your house. He's taking uh, David's flippant cavalier response to Joab's message and he's throwing it back in his face. Well, the sword swings this way one time and this way the next. And the Lord says, it's going to swerve toward your house for the rest of your days. David's house is cursed, and then his son dies. His son dies on the seventh day. Note the seven days of mourning of Uriah, and now the seven days of illness and fasting. David mourns while the child is alive. Dead, dead, dead. The text hammers this word home. You see that word over and over again. It becomes almost comical how often that word is used in just a few short verses as the child is ill. And there's no Hebrew word for yes. So when David asked uh, the, the way you would apply reply in the affirmative to someone, if they ask you a question to uh, reply in the affirmative, you just repeat sort of the main word um, that was the part of your question. So if you asked, is dinner ready? The response would be dinner. And that means, yes, it is ready. Or you would say ready, you know, you repeat the, the, the word that is sort of the subject of the question. And so here, when he asks, is the child dead? The response simply is dead. So this repeating this thematic word, dead, 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 is punctuated with their single response, dead. Can I bring him back again? I will go to him and he will not come back to me. These are the words of a broken man. Where's the David that slew the giant? Where's the David who captured Jerusalem, who brought home the ark, who outsmarted and outlived Saul? Where's the victorious warrior, the, the plotting king? Where is that man in this moment? And for the first time as king, David speaks not out of political advancement or even religious leadership, but as a broken man aware of his darkest weakness. 
Bathsheba is referred to exclusively as Uriah's wife until the death of this son, and only then does the text refer to her as David's wife. A second son is born, Solomon. Uh, it's tr traditional that the woman names the child, she names him his peace. That's what Solomon means, his peace. But Nathan names him Jedediah, which means God's friend. And we learn that the Lord loves Solomon. And finally, Joab sends the one last message, and it's double-edged. Uh, we've had a victory, but also I have had a victory, is what Joab says. He's letting David know, uh, I'm the one that's been doing all the fighting, and I'm the one who's getting all the credit. And so if you don't come down and do it, I'm going to essentially be king de facto. And uh, so Joab has been doing all the fighting, all the winning while David's having his little soap opera. And this political man maneuvering will really persist for the rest of David's life and throughout the lives of, of his children. And at this point, we finally see David taking his place in battle as he should have been in the first place, leaving, going into war and being successful against his enemies, against the enemies of God's people. And once again, the Old Testament story structure of beginning, middle, beginning punctuates a very strong turning point narrative. And so it's interesting that the story of David, this book of Samuel, the story of David builds to this climax. And the story is the rise of the house of David, but it's also the story of the fall of the house of David. And perhaps this is a reminder that as we've learned in the Genesis series, there are no good people not one. The, the extremely blessed king of God's nation of people, successful, peaceful, worshipful, humble, even this, even this person is not good. Even this person needs the forgiveness of God that no human, even one as loved by God as David, no human can be good, especially when focused on the things of the earth. And so we're left again, comparing David and Saul. And I kind of have to think, at least from the standard of the world, did Saul ever do anything remotely this evil? And yet the hand of God was taken away from him. And yet God quickly gives forgiveness to David, who's been the mastermind of these heinous acts. And what is the difference? The difference persists that Saul feared everything but God and David feared nothing but God. When he was confronted by the word of God, David did not fear, but he was a broken man. He was contrite in his spirit. We see that played out through the words of Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. So how can we apply this? One quick scripture, and we'll be done with this lesson. If you've got your Bible, you can turn over to 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. And this is the Apostle John, the best friend of Jesus, writing to the early church many of whom at this point were Gentile, many of whom did not grow up in a religious tradition or knowing the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, many of whom were not even born 
when Jesus died, was resurrected, and ascended back into heaven. They know about Jesus, but John knew Jesus. And we see here in 1 John chapter 2 in this letter, he writes to them, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him. Not know about him, but know him. If we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet doesn't keep his commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. This is all about discipleship. In your life, in your life as a Christian, Jesus says, follow me. And as you follow him, you're going to stray from the following. You're going to sin. It's going to happen. If it happened to David, it's going to happen to you. But thanks be to God, we have an advocate in Christ that says, no, no, you're in me. Follow me. Keep following me. Keep coming towards me. And what John is saying to the, to the young church, to the nascent church here is, you're little children and you need spiritual fathers, people who will help you, hold you accountable and will help you walk as Jesus walked, that will help you continue to trust and follow Jesus. And so that's what I want to leave you with tonight. Some of us are trying to live out our faith on our own. This is a very difficult thing for me, someone who does almost everything on his own. And when we do that, we rob the Lord of a great opportunity to really cultivate trust and, and, and a sense of following him closely. Some of us have people around us that are going through their faith alone, that are going through their walk with Christ alone, that are trying to trust and follow Jesus without any guidance. And they're so far away from Christ that it's hard for them to follow because they, they can't see him clearly and they, they don't know where he's going. So it's our responsibility to reach out to them and to be a guide, to help bring them closer. What John is writing about here in this epistle is all about discipleship. It's about doing what Nathan does for David. It's about doing what David should have been doing for the entire kingdom of Israel, helping them trust and follow the Lord. So I'll leave you with these two questions, questions I've asked before. Who's helping you trust and follow Jesus? And who are you helping to trust and follow Jesus? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.